This podcast is a recording of a lecture given by John Fian in the Royal Irish Academy in November of this year. John was using slides when giving this lecture. The slides are not essential to the understanding and enjoyment of the lecture. However, if you would like to see them, just head over to our YouTube channel where you'll see a video recording of the lecture. Good evening, uh, ladies and gentlemen, those of you who are in the room and those of you who I know are joining in quite large numbers already virtually, including those who are joining from the Clare Island Hub. Uh, you're welcome to our talk this evening, The Island That Prego Found, and the talk is going to be given by John Fian. My name is Mary Canning and I am the president of the Royal Irish Academy. And today we gather to celebrate the completion of the new survey of Clare Island, a series that is built on the pioneering work of the first Clare Island survey of 1909-1911, one of the first geographically specific multidisciplinary studies in the world, masterminded by Robert Lloyd Prager for the Royal Irish Academy. Over the course of the series, the new survey of Clare Island has revisited and expanded on the original survey and presented new insights into the island's cultural life, its fascinating 500 million year geological history, the fauna and algae that populate the rocky coastline of the island, the abbey, which retains much of its medieval painting, the island's many prehistorical and historical artifacts, its soils, the changes in land use over time, and how climate and human intervention have affected the flora and fungi found on the island. Fittingly, the first volume in the New Island Survey focused on the lives of the people for whom Clare Island is home. And I've already mentioned that I hope they're all with us this evening, and maybe some of them even here, but if not, from the Clare Island Hub. That book explores the island's folk life, the evolution of its cultural landscape, and its rich body of place names. The new survey could not have happened without the invaluable contribution of the residents of the island, and the Academy, editors and authors are indebted to all the islanders whose local knowledge, hospitality and help made the project possible in the first place. We welcome many of them here today in Academy House and as I've said, joining us virtually. I would now like to introduce Martin Steer, the managing editor of the Clare Island series, who's going to take over from me. Thank you very much. Good evening, Madam President, officers of the Academy, ladies and gentlemen. It's nice to see you all here this evening, the live audience, and welcome also to the virtual audience online. I want to say a few words about how the survey developed. The new survey is a testament to the vision of the Academy in the late 1980s. They looked 20 years ahead into the future to the centenary of Prager's first survey, which started in 1910. The committee was set up to plan a new survey program to recruit experts and to raise funding, no mean task. By September 1991, the Academy were able to initiate the new survey on Clare Island, the launch by the then Taoiseach, Charles Hockey. You may imagine the excitement of that memorable day as his helicopter swept in across Clue Bay and landed before the assembled crowd of islanders and survey teams. Over the following years, a total of about 90 individual field workers and experts descended on the island where they were welcomed by the generous hospitality of the residents. And I want to reiterate the point made by the president. We are most grateful to the residents of Clare Island for all their assistance.
marshaled into 10 thematic volumes by 20 editors, all gave freely of their own time. Sadly, some have passed away over the years. Their contributions were significant. They are not forgotten. The new survey volumes were beautifully produced and published by the Academy's publication office. The staff worked closely with the individual contributors to ensure that their findings were accurately and appropriately presented. On behalf of the survey, I wish to thank all the sponsors, both individual and corporate, who made it possible to carry out the field work and publish the results. Now tonight, I'm here to introduce you to John Fian. He was given the Herculean task of providing a comprehensive overview of this mass of data, now published as a magnificent volume by the Academy. John is the author of many finely written and beautifully illustrated books. These range from those that are national in scope, Farming in Ireland, History, Heritage and Environment. Another book, Irish Grasses. Some books are regional in scope, books on geology, on heritage, and on florals, wildflowers. Some deal with very specific topics, such as the landscape of Clonmacnoise, the Curra of Kildare. Now, long before the EU had considered environmental agriculture, John was walking the land, talking to farmers. He was struck by one particular region, the Burren, that had many unique characteristics and some inherent problems. He consulted with the local community, with the local farmers, with businesses. He and his graduate students did the research and they came up with a plan to manage the barren landscape and heritage. As you know, this has been hugely successful. I now invite John Fian to give us his overview of the surveys of Clare Island, the Island Prager found. John Fian. Well, good evening and welcome. And uh, good evening to those of you who are joining us on screen, and especially to all of you over there on Clare Island. When Robert Lloyd Prager first set foot on the boat at Runa for his first visit to Clare Island in July of 1903. Nobody knew who he was, and he didn't know anybody on the island. He had no idea that day that he would spend much of his time over the next 12 years or so coming and going to and from the island, and most of his spare time thinking about little else during those 12 years. He was 38 at the time, the most accomplished field naturalist of his day, at the height of his physical powers and almost legendary physical stamina. And then years later in the way that I went, Prager recalled the spell cast on himself and his wife, Helga, on that first visit to Clare Island. And it's worth quoting a little bit from that because there's a clue in the way he described it 30 years later as to everything that happened afterwards. So these are his own words. This is, this is from The Way That I Went, which he published in the late 1930s. They embarked on an utterly calm sea at Runa Pier. And here is his description. All the hills around were smothered in a white mist, which over the island formed an enormous arch solid enough seemingly to walk on and descending nearly to sea level. We lurched across in an ominous stillness and darkness descended before it was due as we groped our way to the little quay. Next day, dense fog and heavy rain kept the couple confined to the little cottage in which they were staying until evening. And then in his own words again, late in the day, the rain ceased and a strange red glow coming from the northwest spread through the thinning mist. We hurried out to the north point of the island, and there, just sinking into the ocean, was a blood-red sun, lighting up thick, inky clouds that brooded low over the black, jagged teeth of Ackle Head. 
Prager was obviously particularly impressed by the magnificent cliffs that formed the front of the Atlantic waves on the northwest of the island. In his own words again, this great cliff is inconvenient to examine because of the shattered and crumbling nature of the slates of which it is composed. But by dint of patience, I explored it from the summit to within reach of the waves, in spite of heavy rain and the accompanying difficulties of foothold. The cliff proved unexpectedly interesting on account of the alpine nature of its vegetation. How Hedwig must have felt as she watched her husband of nearly just two years, exploring those terrifyingly dangerous cliffs we can only imagine, no botanist since has attempted to follow. Prager and his wife spent a week on the island and found the vegetation more varied and more interesting than was expected. Now in Prager's day, naturalists were particularly fascinated by the nature and process of recolonization of oceanic islands far from the mainland. And in particular, of remote islands that had been denuded of all life by volcanic eruption. This fascination had been sparked off by the eruption out in the deep water between the islands of Sumatra and Java of Indo in Indonesia of the island of Krakatoa in 1883, which all but disappeared as a great surge of volcanic magma exploded out of the ocean floor in the most awesome and cataclysmic volcanic eruption ever recorded. All life on the island was extinguished, and for many years it remained utterly deserted. But then a quarter of a century later, life began to arrive mainly by air. The way in which plant and animal life returned to the bare surface of the island attracted the attention of naturalists because of the greatly enhanced interest in colonization and differentiation generated by the publication of Charles Darwin's Origin of Species in 1859. Darwin's discovery of the significance of isolated populations on remote islands for the study of evolution, and many were scanning the globe for other suitably isolated islands where these phenomena might be studied in the light of the new doctrine of natural selection. At the time of the Krakatoa explosion, Robert Lloyd Prager was 18 years of age, a freshman at Queen's University where he was studying engineering. Although we have no record of this in his own words, it's not difficult to imagine how impressed the young Prager was first of all on reading The Origin of Species and later by the eruption of Krakatoa. So when Irish naturalists began to consider the possibility of doing something similar for an island off the Irish coast, Clare Island was chosen largely because of the persuasive power of Prager. He argued that it was just the right size, in a suitable location and with a more varied topography than most of the Western islands. In his own words, it lay sufficiently far off the coast to raise interesting problems as to the immigration of its flora and fauna, but not so far as to introduce delay and expense of the working parties owing to precarious communication with the mainland. Also, if it's possible on Clare Island to procure accommodation for working parties without outlay on buildings. But there was more to it than that. I think it is not too much to claim that Prager was enchanted by the memory of that first visit. And when the idea of an Irish Great Island Survey was being discussed five years later, this was a decisive influence on the selection of Clare Island. Be that as it may, it was certainly Prager's powers of persuasion that were responsible for bringing together in a very short space of time, in an age remember, when all communication was by letter, more, more or less, letter post, and nobody had cars, bringing together a hundred of the most eminent naturalists of the day in Britain and Ireland, covering between them almost every taxonomic group on the island itself, in the surrounding seas, 
and on the mainland from which the flora and fauna of Clare Island had immigrated in the long ago past. Many of the contributors to the original survey treated Clare Island itself as little more than one of several regions in what they described as the broader Clare Island district that included the surrounding seas and the mainland from Ackles southwards to Killary and inland eastward as far as Castle Bar. And as well as the flora and fauna, the survey covered history and archaeology, geology and soils, climatology and topography, agriculture and place names. Now the survey was undertaken with two objectives in mind. To see whether, in Prager's words, again, some beginnings of that differentiation and specialization which are so remarkable a feature of the natural history of Oceanic Islands had taken place since the separation of Clare Island from the mainland. That was the first objective. And the second, to see how many new species a concentrated study of this kind would show to be present, especially, in Prager's words again, among those more obscure and difficult groups which are apt to be neglected when, on a larger area, a rich fauna and flora prevail. The survey was a superb feat of organization on the part of Prager and his wife. And remember, he did all this in his spare time, never mind without computer, smartphone, or Zoom. His nine to five job was as a librarian in the National Library. The Clare Island survey extended over a three year period, up to about a dozen people at a time visiting the island for a week or more between Easter of 1909 and the autumn of 1911. The results were published as volume 31 of the Proceedings of the Royal Irish Academy in a series of 67 parts or fascicles, ranging in size from little pamphlets of two pages on false scorpions to several substantial volumes of over 200 pages on snails and marine worms and so on. A total of over 2,000 pages, a record of an unparalleled bioblitz before the word was invented that was looked on by succeeding generations of naturalists with something approaching awe. The experts looking at many of the groups in the flora and fauna realized early on that little of exceptional note was to be accepted, expected that would shed light on the way a distinctive flora and fauna could colonize and then evolve its own distinctive characteristics on an island. Clare Island was too close to and too recently separated from the mainland. In his general summary, published in 1915, Prager himself recognized this. So the results disappointed Prager's hopes of finding a flora and fauna unique to the island that would throw light on the nature and rate of colonization of oceanic islands. There were no endemic species. Nevertheless, it was extraordinarily successful in overall terms, being the most detailed survey of an island of its size carried out anywhere in the world up to that time. Despite the fact that many of the participants emphasized that it could only be considered a partial survey and that more time and systematic effort would discover many more species. And it was remarkably successful in demonstrating how biodiverse an area like Clare Island could prove to be when studied in this concerted way across the entire spectrum of biodiversity. During the course of the survey, 5,269 species in the fauna were recorded. 1,253 of them new to Ireland, 343 up to that time unrecorded in Great Britain, and 109 new to science. In terms of flora, 
3,219 species were recorded, including 585 new to Ireland, 55 unknown in Britain, and 11 new to, to science. Very few new species were recorded in such well-studied groups as flowering plants, ferns, vertebrates, and higher invertebrates. There was a large increase in the species counts from many groups, local fungi, several groups of insects, worms, rotifers, nematodes, protozoa. Some groups, tardigrades, for example, had never been studied in Ireland before at all. But one of the most remarkable things about the choice of Clare Island for Ireland's Great Island Survey is that on the face of it, this was a most unlikely choice. If the aim was to study an island that had been little disturbed by human impact and most likely therefore to have a richer and more diverse flora and fauna. Indeed, in 1909, Clare Island might well have been in the running as the island least suited for an enterprise of this kind. Little more than a decade before the survey began, Clare Island had undergone a transformation without or with few parallels in the history of European, never mind Irish, agricultural history. And before we can appreciate what that means, we need to spend a few minutes going back 70 years before the survey, 70 years or so before the survey to the years leading up to the Great Famine, when Clare Island had a population of over 1,600 people, a density of one person per hectare, not more or less evenly dispersed across the island, but everybody living in half a dozen or so cluster villages or clachans, as they're sometimes called. Now, this was not a village in the ordinary sense. It didn't have centuries of history behind it. It had no church, no shops, no school, no public house. There was no castle or great house belonging to lord or priest or wealthy craftsman. There was no plan to it. It just grew as the population grew as best it could. And yet this was an institution ideally adapted to permit the steady growth in population, largely dependent on a unique crop grown on marginal land suited to no other, the potato. Most people lived in two-roomed houses into which cattle, pigs, and poultry were brought during the winter months. On their scattered holdings, families grew an acre or two of potatoes, the same of oats. The simple rotation of potatoes and oats was possible because high nutrient inputs in the form of seaweed were available, and sand or lime were also generally available as well. There was also a little hay and perhaps a few perches of cabbage. This and I'll focus in in more detail in, in, in a moment on, on, on some parts of it. This is what is known as the fair plan for Clare Island. And it's from this that the printed six inch map was published by the Ordnance Survey in 1838. But what the hand drawn fair plan has that the printed six inch map doesn't have is that all the houses are colored red and we can see these cluster villages clearly. And this is the largest of them. The largest of these cluster villages was Glen. And here it is, as close to a photograph as we can get, essentially a reconstruction of what we see on the map, based on the six inch measurements and on what we know of the nature of the houses and of what people were doing. All the people had an equal right to graze the 2,000 acres of mountain, which made up two thirds of the total area. There was no fencing whatever on the island, so that when the crops were in the ground, 
the people would have to continue to herd the sheep as they used to do from daylight until dark to save the crops. But when in 1845, seven years after the fair plan and the six inch map were drawn up, when in 1845, the potato blight with which the air of Ireland was charged that black summer, when blight crossed the sea to Clare Island, the bottom fell out of this small world that had grown so rapidly in the short space of a century and a half. The famine brought utter devastation to life on the island. Within a decade, the number of people living on Clare Island was less than half what it had been in 1841, down from 1615 to 745. And the famine crisis didn't end with the 1840s. It flared up intermittently for another half century. In 1886, Clare Island attracted the attention of a traveling correspondent, a correspondent of the Illustrated London News, the equivalent of a famine correspondent reporting from the Horn of Africa today. Famine and fever claim hundreds of victims on these islands, where the distress is now such as was never experienced since 1847, he wrote. There is neither food, fuel, nor clothing left to the miserable people of Clare Island, Inish Turk and Inish Boffin. In that year, the poor yield of potatoes, the low price of cattle, the failure of many seasonal labourers to find work in England or Scotland had reduced them, he said, to absolute destitution. Large areas of cultivated land were abandoned and the settlement pattern altered dramatically. The large villages in Glen, Likaru and Balituhi Moor disintegrated. The roads and paths that had permeated the island like arteries decayed as the lifeblood of the human footfall drained away. There was now no shortage of land, but the system of working it had broken down and the wherewithal to adapt to the changed circumstances was not there. It is hard for us today no, not hard, it is impossible to imagine the cultural disorientation that came in the wake of the famine. Before this, everything had been done as a community activity and there were no territorial walls in the space between people. The continued poverty and congestion, as it was known, of the Western counties finally precipitated large-scale state intervention. And in 1891, what was called the Congested Districts Board was established initially for the Western Seaboard, but later covering nearly a third of the country. The most far-reaching state intervention in European rural society prior to the Russian Revolution. And Clare Island was one of the very first areas to which the CDB turned its attention, and in 1892, it prepared a report on conditions there. The lease at this time was held by 76 tenants, but things were in such a state of chaos that it was impossible for most of the people to pay their rent. No rent rates or taxes had been pay paid for years. There was simply nothing to pay it with. And when the island was put up for sale, it remained on the market for years. Subdivision of land over the generations had become so utterly complex and chaotic by this time that only the tenacious memories of the inhabitants could decide the boundaries of each man's scattered holdings. A man, and this is an actual example, who paid rent for 10 acres might have it in 20 or 30 scattered little patches. So on the 15th of March in 1895, the Congested District Board bought 
Clare Island in its entirety for £5,000 on the 15th of March and proceeded to completely reorganise the chaotic pattern of landholding into one of viable farms where each farmer held all his land together. The 76 new farms were divided from each other by sod-banked fences, often taking the form of narrow stripes of land extending from the mountains right down to the sea so that everyone would have a fair share of land of varying quality. The new farmhouses that replaced the pre-CDB homes in the cluster settlements were little more than an enlarged and more refined version of the existing dwelling type. They were built by the islanders themselves using local materials, often from demolition of the older buildings. Two-roomed houses were still in the majority in 1901, but most were three-roomed by 1911. Sheds were built for the animals. Main drains were opened. The mountain commonage was fenced off from the newly enclosed ladder farms by an immense stone wall, nearly seven miles long and six feet high, built by the tenants as a contribution towards the arrears on the purchase price. 35 miles of boundary fences. Sod fences, for the most part, were constructed from the Great Wall down to the sea. New grazing, turbary and seaweed rights were defined and upheld by arbitration and careful supervision. The work took five years at a cost of £8,589. The working day on the island in those years governed by a bell erected on the quay. And then on the 25th of October, 1897, Clare Island was resold to the tenants for £10,000 to be repaid in the form of annuities of 3.5% over a period of about 68 years. The tenants undertook to pay a portion of the arrears within six months, which every one of them duly did. Every farmer ended up with 15 to 20 acres of potentially arable land on the lower ground and the right of grazing for so many sheep or cattle on the mountains. Three or four acres of this might be tilled at any one time, half under oats, half under potatoes, alternating about for eight to 10 years after which the land was allowed to revert to grass. We can put faces on some of the people whose story this is. These photographs by Charles Brown were taken between 1898 and 1900. Indeed, if you are living on Clare Island and look carefully at the faces, you might even think you can put a name on some of them. This then was the new Clare Island crisscrossed by the naturalists and antiquarians of the Prager survey, no more than a few years after its makeover, when the natural world had been banished to the margins. Everything they saw and recorded had survived the enormous human impact of the previous century on the landscape. On all sides, as they hastened to their destinations on the cliffs and the uplands, along the western road past the abbey to the remote west of the island or northwards to the lighthouse. On all sides were the ridged fields of oats and potatoes, new fields made fertile by the nutrient-rich harvest of the sea, the new fields scarcely seen by enthusiastic naturalists with things like relict Arctic alpine plants or reclusive spiders on their minds. It is nothing short of amazing that in the entirety of the Clare Island survey, there is no reference to this extraordinary story. 
several things, several aspects of all this have always struck me with particular force. First of all, there was the nature of what we would now call government intervention with a scheme that was specifically targeted at the unique problems of this one island. And secondly, the extraordinary persuasive skill of the men who worked with the congested district board who could sit around the table with those 76 farming families we looked at, some of whom we looked at a moment ago, to accept the wholesale reorganization of landholding on the island. And then the third aspect of all this is that almost as soon as the last of the Pragers left the island and the final fascicle of the survey had been safely tucked away on the top shelf, a forgotten century set in as the island spotlight moved away elsewhere its new focus to a large extent determined by an extraordinary map produced in 1922, which showed the percentage of people who spoke Irish in every district and was a decisive influence in identifying the islands considered to have a priority in the new Ireland. By this time, few people on Clare Island spoke Irish although a century before, most of the adults could speak it. The remodeled landscape of the congested district board is essentially what we see today. Nothing remains of the cluster villages, but scattered banks and wall footings, house platforms and grassy footpaths. This is a view of all that remains of Glen, the reconstruction of which we saw a few minutes ago. Scarcely a stone remains upon a stone, the walls of the houses having been dismantled and incorporated into the walls of the new farmscape. They have melted back into the ground to become another layer in the archeological palimpsest, less conspicuous by far than the ridged fields of which they were once the very heart. The idea of a new survey of Clare Island, a century after the Prager survey, as Martin mentioned earlier, was first mooted by the Royal Irish Academy in 1988. It was hoped that it would not only allow comparison and evaluation of change over the century between the two surveys, but constitute a new baseline that would be invaluable for future environmental monitoring. A feasibility study was carried out in 1990 with the enthusiastic support of the Center for Island Studies. And this concluded that such a survey would be both worthwhile and scientifically justified. And it was hoped, hoped that it would provide a resource that would support community development and employment on the island. By the time the first of the new generation of Pragers stepped ashore in 1992, the busy ridged fields of potatoes and oats through which the first Pragers made their way had disappeared. Or rather, they were still there, but now grassed over and grazed by sheep in some areas, but more often than not undergrazed and covered with bracken and soft rushes. Farming had moved from the frugal self-sufficiency of decades before to a sheep monoculture dictated by policies tailored at best to mainland farming and the broader world beyond. And like its predecessor, the new survey can be considered an outstanding achievement, although it has not entirely succeeded in its aim of making and evaluating detailed comparison between the island of 100 years ago and today. This is due in part to differences in survey methodology and intensity of effort between the two. 
Also, in its study of the island's biota, the new survey had a more ecological focus and didn't always adopt the stricter taxonomic approach of the old survey with a separate fascicle on every group or a small number of groups in the survey. As a result of this, there are many taxonomic gaps, particularly of marine organisms, and it should be remembered that only 16 of the 36 or so major phyla of plants and animals occur on land. The results of the new survey were published in the 11 volumes you see before you over a period of just over 20 years. Between them, beating the first survey in this respect, between them over two and a half thousand pages. My own volume 11, closest to me here at the end, providing an overview and evaluation of the two great surveys. But this time, the 11 books of the survey will not be consigned to a top shelf to gather dust alongside the, the Prager volumes, nor will Clare Island be allowed to drift further out to sea as far as the Royal Irish Academy is concerned. Over the 10 years in which I was at work attempting a synthesis and overview of the 10 earlier volumes of the new survey, it became clear that an agri-environmental program similar in structural terms and objectives to the highly successful Burren program could be developed on Clare Island and needed to be developed. The findings of the survey enable us to make the argument for such a program in a uniquely detailed way. Focusing in the first place on the restoration and enhancement of the island's distinctive kind of species diverse grassland, best seen today on tightly grazed areas, very often in the old ridge field systems, but also on lower areas of commonage. This is a type of grassland that is evaluated on the basis of the number of species of the particular fungal soil community it supports, and which has been attracting increasing attention among ecologists across Europe. The most conspicuous fungi in this community are the colorful mushrooms known as wax caps, but a number of other groups are also present, such as earth tongues and club fungi. Clare Island has the second richest wax cap flora in Ireland, second only to the Curra of Kildare, which has been far more intensively studied over very many more years. In volume seven of the new survey, David Mitchell concluded that the claim that grassland fungi are probably the most important nature conservation feature on Clare Island and parts of the island merit consideration for statutory site protection. Much of the ridged farmscape has, however, been lost to encroaching bracken and soft rush, particularly, resulting in the loss of the kind of high nature value grassland we're talking about. Nowhere can the vast extent of the abandoned ridge systems be better seen than on LIDAR images. And in 2007, the Royal Irish Academy commissioned a LIDAR survey of Clare Island from the UK Environment Agency's science group, where this can be measured and studied in a quantitative fashion. This is the southwest corner of Bonamohan. The stream in the center there is the Owen Moore River. So this is a little way south of the former cluster villages of Le Caru and Strake. That's the first target. A second target would be met in the process of meeting this first objective of grassland restoration in conservation and enhancement of the fabric of the traditional farmed landscape in place 120 years ago, 
put in place 120 years ago with the reorganization of the island's farm landscape. This twofold deterioration can be halted and reversed through the proposed restoration program, grounded in a new awareness of its importance and potential, both for the island itself and in the context of European agri-environmental policy, a program that sets out to conserve, restore, and manage this landscape in an ecologically sensitive and agriculturally informed way. The range of practices needed to achieve this includes the removal of bracken and soft rush. It requires drainage and the development of an intensive grazing regime appropriate to the maintenance and preservation of the ridge systems. In the process, greatly extending the area of high nature value nutrient exceptional, closely cropped sward with no disruption of sod or rank growth of bracken or soft rush. And incidentally, and importantly, ideal for foraging by that most characteristic of island birds, the chuff. And there's another side to all of this that relates to the development of an enhanced model for tourism on Clare Island. The final volume brings together between the covers of a single book, a synthesis of the entire spectrum of both the natural and cultural heritage of the island. Seaweeds and spiders, rocks and farming and flowers, birds and soils, fishes and phylloctophia. In each case tied to particular places and landforms on and around the island in a way that constitutes a ready-made storyboard that can be mined for the development of a broader and richer model for agritourism, exploiting an island-wide resource of great diversity with an equal to an appeal to a broader range of visitors across a much wider range of interests and abilities, from schools and university groups to visitors with an interest in any and every aspect of the rural environment, both at home and abroad. And that island-wide tourism can be developed in synergy with the development of the agri-environmental program. And it enhances the prospect of a type of agri-tourism that is more widely anchored in the farming community in terms of accommodation and package provision alongside the more traditional models. This can be seen as picking up on an objective of the new survey that was lost sight of to a great extent over the 30 years of the survey. Namely, and I'm, the, the phrase used was, a proposed series of thematic and dynamic maps for educational odysseys in the natural and cultural heritage of the island. All of this, presents us with the challenge and opportunity to adopt and adapt the most innovative digital platforms now available for the provision of information and access, minimizing intrusive infrastructure, and it gives a whole new and exciting urgency to the possibilities presented by the proposal to develop the castle as a digital hub and gateway to the island. The first step towards our proposed program is a study that would tease out in detail the nature and scale of the challenges and of the benefits to be delivered. It would expl explicate the methods to be employed in tackling these challenges under the varying circumstances that prevail in different parts of the island. It would outline in detail the timing and extent of farmer involvement, as well as issues relating to funding and farmer remuneration. And such a research program will lay the ins indispensable foundation for an application for funding to implement the program. And where this book and the monumental database from which it is distilled comes in, 
is that it provides a springboard for the argument that needs to be made for European funding for the programme, without which the vision it opens up cannot be realised. No other part of Ireland can argue its claim or define in such detail what its uniqueness consists of than Clare Island can. The outlines of the proposed programme are being drawn up with the help of the School of Agriculture and Food Science at UCD and the knowledge and experience of an advisory group of experienced agricultural scientists with the continued patronage of the Royal Irish Academy and we hope to get it into first gear early in the new year. And an important point I should emphasize is that down the line, the program could be applied much more widely because the abandoned cultivation ridge systems on which this floristically rich and important microflora developed after the famines of the 19th century are widespread across the west of Ireland, particularly on many of the islands. So the program would help to inform best practice in relation to the conservation and restoration of this important habitat elsewhere in the west of Ireland and more widely. We will be applying for the necessary support under the next round of funding under the European Union's EIP Agri programme, which in a fortnight's time will be holding its annual conference at which the farmers of Clare Island will be well represented. In the meantime, in advance of that application, I will represent the farmers of Clare Island myself early in the new year as part of a focus group that will be discussing issues relating to abandoned farmland across Europe as a whole. We are presented here with an opportunity to develop and implement a program that has the potential to transform the possibilities for the future of farming on Clare Island. Now is the time. If we let this opportunity slip from us, it will never come our way again. Thank you.